My name is Stuart Parker, and this is my show, Cocktail Hour. Joining me on the line from uh, Richmond, Virginia, where he is a professor of religious studies and the Walter Sullivan Chair of Catholic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, is Andrew Chestnut, a um, scholar of... um, a religion in the Americas, uh, whom I have long followed and admired. And um, uh, he's chosen as his cocktail, a uh, mezcal passion fruit cocktail. So first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor and privilege to be here. My first question about this drink is, uh, what's it called in the place where it's from? Cocktail de maracuya. Maracuya is uh, passion fruit in Mexico and many other countries. Actually, it has another name in South America called parcha, but it's usually maracuya. So it's cocktail de maracuya con mezcal. So, yeah. And uh, what, uh, what made you choose this particular cocktail? Um, well, I spent two months of summer research in Mexico, and I was in the two prime mezcal producing states. The signature one, of course, as many of you will know, is Oaxaca. So I was doing research in Oaxaca, where I had all kinds of uh, interesting new mezcales that I hadn't had before. And my wife's home state, Michoacan, which is probably better known as the avocado capital of the world, producing 80% of Mexico's crop, uh, is the second most important state. In fact, um, we're not on video here, but actually I mixed up my passion fruit mezcal cocktail with a Michoacan mezcal, at, which is actually made by a friend of mine in Michoacan. So oh, wow. um, it also has sentimental value as well. So um, do they do mezcal distillery tours the way they do scotch tours in Scotland? Exactly, they do. That's actually, in, especially in Oaxaca, uh, uh, outside of the capital, that's that's kind of a big tourist draw in Oaxaca. Definitely, yeah, they do that, and that's. I mean, you know, Oaxaca is often considered the culinary capital of Mexico, and if you're down there, that's that's actually something that you might want to do. I was entertained, of course, by all of the food photographs in your Twitter feed. Uh, <laughs> you know, I showed up for the high level intellectual concepts and stayed for uh, the well presented food, and. Uh, so uh, one of the one of the observations you made as you're at all these different restaurant tables all summer throughout Mexico is the ubiquity of American Tabasco sauce in Mexico. Mm. And I, I, I wanted to ask what you make of that. Is that recent? Has it always been the case? What's going on there? Yeah, that's that's I'm so glad you brought that up. In fact, we could in- dedicate the entire a conversation today to food and drink. <laughs> actually, actually, the past years, my most popular course is food, drink, and drugs of the Americas. So how could it not a, be? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Tabasco, uh, American Tabasco, which is uh, produced um, in Louisiana, and I think was was founded in the 1840s, is really older than any other commercial Mexican hot sauce. And so, you know, even before Mexico produced its own commercial sauces, Tabasco was there. And yeah, I would say I've been going to Mexico for almost 40 years since the early 1980s. And I would say it's ever increasing. Um, there's and, and I asked my family members this time, what's up with Tabasco? Do you like it? Why is there so much? And, you know, some people really criticize the um, high vinegar content. But 
a fair amount of my family members said, oh, you know, that's something I really appreciate because it distinguishes it from our Mexican salsas. Um, and there's certain things that they really tend to put it on. And I'd say particularly pizza. It's along, along with throwing ketchup on it. Uh, Tabasco sauce seems to be obligatory on pizza. So pretty much anytime you order a pizza, they'll bring out a big uh, bottle of Tabasco. Wow. Well, I got to say, I, I have a new plan for saving a mediocre pizza now. That that seems like a, <laughs> that seems like a solid move. There's a lot of mediocre pizza in our lives. and Skip the ketchup, though, right? Yeah, that's that's a bridge too far for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, where the uh, where I live, um, pizzas are made in uh, non ovens primarily oh, by, right, uh, right. by Punjabi you, right. people. You so, have the best uh, South and East Asian eats, probably in uh, in our hemisphere. Well, to be Vancouver. clear, we have great Punjabi food, but Vancouver, uh, uh, Surrey, a suburb of Vancouver, Surrey is to Calistan as Boston was to Ulster. So hmm. okay. Um. So I want to be clear: we do Northwest Indian stunningly well, but the religious and regional makeup of the Indian diaspora here is totally conditioned by the independence struggle uh, of the Northwest and the attempt to recreate a Sikh state. Even though the majority are no longer pro-Khalistani, right, it's still seeped into the culture the way the Irish freedom struggle seeped into the culture of uh, greater Boston. Gotcha. So, uh, so yes, we get... Yeah, so best tandoori chicken anywhere, but uh, I'm not I'm not going to say anything about you know Carolyn food here. There are only like 1,200 Carolyns here. Okay, okay. So uh, <laughs> so we're not advertising our fish curry. So uh, before we totally leave Oaxaca, of course, there's very little that comes to people in. British Columbia, which is I mean, southwestern BC is the absolute worst Mexican food on earth. Um, I hear that. I hear uh, it's that. Um, the only place I've been with that rivals the awfulness of our Mexican food is Flint, Michigan. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you're if you're in Vancouver and you want good Mexican food, the sensible thing is to drive to the U.S. border, and as soon as you cross, go to the first Mexican restaurant you see. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you have to drive across the coast mountains and go to a particular food truck that serves temporary foreign workers in the South Okanagan. But uh, that truck is hard to find. So generally, there's widespread ignorance and confusion about Mexican food here. And so the only thing that is ever branded here based on a regional thing in Mexico is the Oaxaca cheese. Oh, right. Which, um you know, is really extraordinary. It is like, it's it's like that cheese they use in tiramisu, at least the version that we get. It's sort of like sweet. Um, what's the deal yeah, there? Although, How much well, distortion yeah. are we experiencing? Don't get me started on cheese because I'm going to say, I'm going to say, and um, I'll probably lose all my Latin American followers, but I'm going to say Latin America in general is a wasteland in terms of cheese, which is really interesting because, you know, the Spanish and the Portuguese have really nice cheeses, Spanish manchego, for example. But if you get Mexican manchego, it's like, you know, it's like mozzarella. What did they do with the flavor? A lot of the pungency of the European cheeses was just lost in the Americas. So, yeah, I, I just 
uh, I'm, you know, in, in general from Mexico down to Brazil, the cheese tends to be pretty bland. And I, I'm a fan of stronger, more pungent cheeses, gorgonzola, blue, oh. um, uh, those type of cheeses. So, but yeah, I mean, yeah, Oaxaca is great for quesadillas and chile rellenos and such. I use but, it as a dessert cheese, uh, the way I'd use the, the um, uh, mascarpone. I, I mm -hmm. find that um, it's really subtle, but the, ex the, the exceptional thing about it that another cheese isn't going to bring you is sweetness. There aren't mm -hmm. a lot of sweet cheeses, I think, from anywhere. Now, mm -hmm. the um, Manchego, um, our Manchego will give Latin America a run for their money there, too. Um I'm the, sure it will. Uh, our manchego is horrendous. We actually have counterfeit manchego with a <laughs> fake rind made with black dye. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, a fake cheese rind. Nothing under that fake cheese rind is going to be good. <laughs> so um, anyway, in with all the pictures of the food, of course, are the pictures of the thing you were up to down there. You're, As far as I could tell, you're collecting visual stuff both for your ongoing interest in Santa Muerte and also in the narco saints. And what, and I gotta say, I, I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to start with this narco saint phenomenon because it seems the most shocking of the various Latin American saint developments. Right, so in addition to Santa Muerte, there's several other folk saints and even Catholic saints who um, who double as patron saints of drug cartels. And besides Santa Muerte, the most famous or infamous one is Jesus Malverde, who's from the northern state of Sinaloa, as in uh, Chapo Guzman, Sinaloa cartel. Um, his cult is expanding rapidly. Um, not too long ago, he was kind of confined to northern Mexico, but now you find him all over Mexico and uh, most of the big city botanicas in the U.S. also sell his paraphernalia as well. Um, and the most interesting for me, the most interesting saint that doubles as a thug saint, I also call him thug saint sometimes, or narco saint, is the most popular Catholic saint not only in Mexico, but also among Latinx, Latinos, Latinas here in the United States. And that is St. Jude Thaddeus, i.e. patron of lost causes. Number one Catholic saint in Mexico. Yet um, he's got this large contingent of um, marginalized youth uh, who are his followers. He is the only Catholic saint I've ever heard of who not only not only has an annual feast day but a monthly feast day every 28th day of each month is his feast day uh in mexico city and other parts of mexico and if you go to his main temple in mexico city called uh san hipolito uh there'll be lots of youth there huffing glue smoking weed with life-size images of saint jude and such and so the really interesting thing is that the, the Mexican Catholic Church, which is the second largest on the planet after the Brazilian, has kind of embraced this edgy St. Jude as a way to compete with Santa Muerte. Yet, <laughs> um, you know, he's got this similar, similar demographic of followers of marginalized use and organized crime. And it's even said that 
we don't have the visual here, but people can check it out. When he appears in portraits with the staff in his left hand, that means he's open to left-handed petitions, uh, meaning petitions that are not necessarily of a Christian morality, right? So, so if you're looking, petitions. if you're looking, yeah, if you're looking for your fentanyl to arrive safely to Vancouver, then <laughs> when you see Jude with the staff in his left hand, then go for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, this, you know, this is the, the larger problem for the Catholic Church and Santa Morte is that their own most popular saint doubles as a narco saint. Even even a popular advocation of the Christ child, uh, the holy child of Atocha, whose main shrine I visited in uh, in Zacatecas this summer, also is fairly popular among Mexican narcos. In fact, Chapo Guzman's son was was captured a few months ago wearing a scapular of the holy child of Atocha. Um, and maybe that helped uh, helped gain him a speedy release because he was captured by the Mexican Marines and let go within just um, two hours. <laughs> wow. So the saint doing its job. <laughs> I now, guess so. Now, now I wanted to. Now, I think this is really helpful. There are some premises to this conversation that we should probably get out of the way. So, um, right, Canada has a large number of people who are Catholics, but generally um, white Canadians, even if they are Catholics, are not observant Catholics, right? Our right. Catholic churches are largely, uh, you know, the communities that show up for church regularly in Canada, it's the Filipino community and the indigenous people. And, um, you know, that was a big problem when uh, uh, last summer uh, where um, people of the political left essentially staged a set of um, KKK style church burnings here. Uh, yeah, right. the churches of, um, mm -hmm. of indigenous and Filipino people. Um, so one of the things that that shows, though, is the degree to which there's very little knowledge among mainstream uh, Anglo-Canadians of how religion operates on a daily basis. It's a form you check on the census for a lot of people. And you know, 30% of Quebecers check both atheist and Catholic on their census form. <laughs> yeah. So we, um, uh, so one of the things, common beliefs is that saints come into being because the Catholic church creates them through a bureaucratic process of recognizing, of officially investigating and recognizing miracles they have performed. And it's also an assumption that Saints are created inside the institution of a church rather than being created in popular culture and then manifesting within church institutions. So one of the, you, you've been looking at the decline of Catholicism, the rise of Pentecostalism in Latin America. And so I wanted to ask, is the cult of the saints bigger than the Catholic church? Are there people outside the Catholic Church who are part of these popular movements of recognizing and paying their respect to these saints? That's an excellent question. But let me go back also and point out okay. that these Catholic Church burnings weren't peculiar to your country. 
They also happened in Chile a few years ago, and it was mostly Mapuche indigenous people burning Catholic churches because of, you know, the news of, of Catholic abuse, you know, priests and sexual abuse and such. And also also the Mapuche historically seeing the Catholic Church as part of, you know, Spanish colonization as well. So Canada has not been alone. No, uh, and I think the I think the white people who went and burned those churches were people who thought they were doing it on behalf of neo-traditionalist indigenous people, mm -hmm. like the Mapuche people you're talking about. But neo-traditionalists indigenous people here as much as they're not members of the catholic church and they dislike the catholic church they wouldn't have attacked churches in their own community because sure, of course uh it's their neighbor's church and they have of to course. do business with their neighbors of course yeah to go back to your question um yeah really if we're specifically talking about catholic saints um no in general in general, at least in the Latin American context and also in the American context, I would say that Catholic saints appeal are pretty much limited to Catholics, unlike unlike folk saints, right, who appeal to Catholics and non-Catholics. But I think we always need to delineate with evangelicals and Pentecostals who see both Catholic saints and folk saints as uh, idolatry. Okay, so when you say folk saint, what's an example of a folk saint who's not a Catholic saint? There are some folk saints who become Catholic saints, but if I'm using the term folk saints, it's because they're not Catholic saints. They have not been canonized. And so some examples, so this is a very strange peculiarity of Latin America. I mean, Latin America by far is the most Catholic region on earth. 40% of the 1.3 billion Catholics on the planet reside in Latin America. Um, historically, you know, it's been 98, 99% Catholic, although there's been a precipitous decline. And I, as I well detailed in my own research since the 1970s, uh, and now we're down to maybe about, you know, 70, 75% Catholic. Brazil, the largest Catholic population on earth as of 2018 is no longer Catholic majority. It hit only 50% in 2018. Um, so despite the fact that this is the most Catholic and Christian region on earth, the thousands of Catholic saints strangely were not enough for many Latin Americans. And why is that? Because as you well know, the great majority of these thousands of Catholic saints were born in Europe and lived and lived their lives out centuries ago and so aren't necessarily so relatable to contemporary Latin Americans. Unlike all these folk saints, the great majority of whom were real uh, Latin American men and women who lived out their lives on Argentine, Brazilian, Mexican soil and mostly were working class and often die violent lives Another peculiarity of Latin America, by far, it's not the poorest region on Earth, but it is the most violent, violent region on Earth. Almost all the top 10 uh, homicide rates in the world, maybe eight or nine of those countries are going to be uh, Latin American. And so, uh, you know, these are work. The folk saints were working class people often suffered injustice. And so, you know, they're much more relatable than Europeans who died five centuries ago. So when I was um, 
and you'll obviously there's a reason I'm bringing this process up. You know, when I went through that second part of my PhD program, the hazing, um, where you have to read the 200 books in 200 days, and I, I first encountered your thinking. This is at um, Toronto, right? Yeah, University of Toronto. Huh? So, so before we get to my encounter with your book, um, now I, I hadn't, I haven't, I don't follow Brazil at all. Well, I'm very interested in the dictatorship between '64 and '85, but I haven't, I haven't followed 21st century Brazil. But one of the things I, I do remember during that process was that in Brazil there was a breach for these sort of popular saints in the, the Catholic criteria for sainthood, that in, uh, that, right, one of the first things we see in the schism between the Latin West and the Orthodox East back in the ninth century is that generally Eastern Orthodox saints become saints while they're alive, and they have a very <laughs> poor chance of becoming saints after dying if they're not recognized as a saint during life. Whereas in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have to be dead before you can even start being a saint. Right. So I'm, I'm interested, is there, um, has Brazil held on to its living saint phenomenon, this sort of Eastern Orthodox borrowing, or are these, are these popular saints uh, all dead folks? That's, it's interesting. Did you see the article that I tweeted out, I think, yeah, today? on a Brazilian folk saint who is becoming, who was just beatified or is in the process of beatification. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't, yeah, okay. didn't see that at all. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, this is a fascinating case. Uh, he's known as, as Padre Cicero and lived in the Northeastern backlands of Brazil from uh, the late 19th century to the early 20th century was a Catholic priest. And in 1889, I believe, um, one of the parishioners to whom he was giving communion, uh, reportedly the communion wafer turns to blood in her mouth. And this happened uh, over a period of two or three years. It happened more than 50 times. And um, the local church, like local diocese, investigated it and claimed that it was fraudulent uh, ended up defrocking him from the priesthood. And a few years later, the Vatican even gave orders of excommunication. However, the local bishop didn't follow through that. Anyway, 90 years later, and, and so anyway, he was a folk saint, like a living prophet, had a huge following in northeastern Brazil during his time. Folks would move from other parts of Brazil to live on communes and follow him and such. And after being reviled and pretty almost excommunicated, now he's in the process of beatification. And why is that? Because he still has a huge following and the Catholic Church in Brazil has been hemorrhaging, particularly the Pentecostals. And of these thousands of Catholic saints, less than 1% were born in the Americas. And if we bring in the U.S. and Canada, 50% of these 1.3 billion Catholics live in the Americas, yet there's precious few um, American-born saints. And that, that's why we had, in 1990s, the canonization of St. Juan Diego, the Mexica indigenous uh, man who, you know, purportedly received the apparition of the Virgin Guadalupe in 1531 as, as a way to specifically appeal to indigenous Latin Americans who, along with 
Latin Americans of African descent have been the largest demographics uh, leaving the church. And so since Pope John Paul II, there's been like a 24-7 canonization machine at the Vatican trying to canonize American-born saints as a way to, you know, as a way to have a greater appeal to Latin Americans and try to staunch the bleeding to Pentecostal churches. Yeah, and I think that um, we often don't think about how doctrine and canonization and things like that are, are defensively driven. We often we often take churches at their word, uh, which I find odd because atheists are far more likely to believe outrageous claims churches make about themselves than Christians are. Uh, there's <laughs> this, uh, our doctrine has never changed. The atheist goes, of course it hasn't. We trust you 100%. Uh, I mean, this, I had, I had the good fortune to um, talk with the premier liberal Mormon theologian who was in Brazil in 1978 as a missionary when the Mormons suddenly ensouled black people. And right. it was because they were three weeks away from having an autocephalic uh, Brazilian Mormon church separate from them. And they were staring ah, okay, down okay. the barrel of the largest Mormon church in the world possibly being in Brazil and possibly being run by people of color. So exactly. And Brazil fast. And Brazil has the second largest black population in the world after Nigeria. So there you go. So um, of course I brought up the comprehensive exams because you're in the blizzard of 200 books. Only one (laughs) of those books paused in the middle of saying something very, very important to give a two-page rant about how terrible Corona beer is. And <laughs> it was as eloquent. That, those those two pages of competitive spirits, um, they're literally like, I had been telling stories of studying for those exams every year. Uh, it was just like, it was like finding an oasis in a desert. I felt because I was dealing with a clever author who was also just a person who, like me, was clearly sitting there with a glass of beer he found unsatisfactory. So um, I wanted to. So first of all, I wanted to ask, how the hell do you get an anti-corona beer rant into a um, a fairly high-level intellectual <laughs> academic book about the changing Latin American religious? Right. And this is this is the book that got me promotion to full professor. Right. So it had to be you deserved it. it. That was an amazing. It it had to be fairly weighty. Right. But but yeah, I just thought, you know, kind of being a beer connoisseur. And this was back when I should say in the last 10 years, there's really a burgeoning craft beer industry in Mexico, because I said to my wife like 12 years ago, I was like, when is this going to happen in Mexico? You know, I mean, Mexicans love strong flavors and the commercial beers are so insipid. But I'm happy to say now that at least in all the big cities, you know, there's lots of craft brew pubs. And and, you know, I've had I've had American style IPAs that I'd rate 92, 93 out of 100. So that's been a great development. So, yeah, I was thinking, oh, my God. Corona, I don't know. Corona might have been done in lately by the coronavirus, right? I'm sure it hasn't helped them. Prior to that, it was the best-selling beer in the entire world with 5% of global beer sales. 
And for those of us who appreciate good beers, we know it's not because of the taste of the beer. But, you know, back when it started to become popular here in the States in the 80s with the yuppies, I mean, that whole novelty of it was a you know clear glass bottle, you'd squeeze your your wedge of lime into it. And, you know, prior to that, as Canada maybe still is or was, you know, this was a lemon country, but because of Mexican influence, we're more and more of a lime country. So squeezing your lime in and plus those brilliant, brilliant ads where, you know, you're alone in your hammock on the beach in Cancun, sipping your Corona. I mean, selling it, selling it is that Cancun spring break beach vacation has just been built brilliant. So I just thought, you know, that was a brilliant example of how the content of the product um, in in uh, late age capitalism doesn't necessarily matter. It's, it's all about the marketing. Yeah. And I mean, the idea that a beer would be in such rough shape, you would need to save it with lime juice. It seems like a kind of a self-indictment of the beer. Well, well, and, and the latest advent, have you heard of micheladas? No. Okay. So since the 1990s, this is all the rage in Mexico in which you take your Corona beer or some other insipid commercial beer and you mix it with Clamato that tomato mm. juice with clams. Yeah, the, tobacco- it was invented here. Vancouver and Calgary fight over who invented Clamato. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Clamato, Tabasco sauce, Worcestershire sauce, and some, some folks throw tamarind juice. And that's called michelada. And they're all the rage. I mean, there's bars that serve nothing but micheladas in Mexico these days. And I think that was another way to compensate for these insipid commercial beers. Yeah, it um, it's a strange phenomenon, the um, the Corona thing. And really, you know, the thing they're trying to do, the Japanese do better. Kieran, the one that's been taking a pasting and market share, I think is probably pulling off the thing Corona wanted to do. But, you know, loss of mission. Uh, now, the book was also amazing because, and I'm going to say my favorite thing about the book, and then I hope you can help to contextualize it for the listeners. But what blew my mind was you showed a clear, demonstrable relationship between uh, neoliberal healthcare austerity and magical belief that people with health problems who couldn't afford certain kinds of medicine were participating in African diasporic religion, Pentecostal religion, religions that had a healing component to them so that people who were priced out of the neoliberal healthcare market had incentives, rational incentives for some of their religious practice. And it, it turned my head because I, and I, I'm, I, you know, I haven't read your book in years. I may be misrepresenting it to some. Nor have I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you did show that people want to be healed. They want to heal others. And that the lack of access to non-magical health care may have something to do with what's going on. So in competitive spirits, you, you apply like a market type economic analysis to the religious marketplace of Latin America what um, uh, 
have I have I represented the book okay? What yeah, would you say? Yeah, definitely. And I and I focus on I focus on those religious groups who have been most prosperous, uh, as you said, the African diasporan ones, um, Candomblé, Santeria, Voodoo, Pentecostalism, and the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which is the church's own brand of Pentecostalism. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's an accurate representation. And I, I would say that if there's been one strong connecting thread in my quarter century research, it has been that emphasis on faith healing. And indeed, with my latest work on, on these folk saints, um, you know, even, even Jesus Malverde, the, the so-called narco saint from Sinaloa, I mean, so many folks are actually approaching him for, for miracles of health. And, you know, it blew my mind when I first started my research on Santa Muerte uh, in 2009, how paramount faith healing is with Santa Muerte. I mean, who's going to think that with this death saint, people are asking her for more life? But sure enough, I mean, if there's one, one you know, most important type of miracle that people are petitioning her for, it's miracles of, of health. Again, because of the lack of adequate health care, um, which, of course, we suffer from in my own country, but even more acutely, of course, in Latin America. So, yeah, um, faith healing in the context of insufficient, inadequate medical coverage throughout the hemisphere uh, is paramount to understanding the popularity of these particular folk saints and, and some of the Catholic saints as well. And Pentecostalism, I mean, Pentecostalism is all about faith healing, health and wealth gospel. Yeah, and uh, let me let me assure you the um, the healthcare situation is it's hemispheric. Our governments used COVID as cover for massive healthcare austerity, so we used COVID to fire nurses and doctors. And so I uh, I was at I had to apply to be allowed to see my psychiatrist. I've been in that process for. Four months. I've been. I've had two ninety-minute interviews by bureaucrats uh, to justify me wanting to see my psychiatrist. So, uh, yeah, I think we're. Um, you know, the neoliberal austerity. It takes place in fits and starts. There are moments where it rolls back a little bit, with like with the Affordable Care Act. But, I mean, I also live in an environment of increasing magical belief and increasing conspiracy thinking, because I think we all do at this stage of, uh, of capitalism. Exactly. As we just saw in Saskatchewan, that recent incident of uh, exorcism gone bad at a, at a summer Bible camp. Yes. And Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan looked at what happened to Kansas and decided to copy it. I, I don't understand uh, the people of Saskatchewan at all. I met, an, uh, I met a, a young indigenous man living in a homeless shelter in Prince George, where I was living, which is, you know, a pretty violent industrial town. And it's like, well, how do you like living here? And he goes, oh, I, I much prefer living in the shelter here to where I was before. It's like, where were you before? He goes, Saskatchewan. Uh, so, um, yeah, there's, there's a very, uh, it went from being the birthplace and cradle of Canadian socialism to one of the most pro-austerity, pro-magic, uh, uh, jurisdictions. The premier of Saskatchewan, um, 
barely literate and has had about th- uh, I think he's killed two people with drunk driving <laughs> um so it's it's a wild scene you did say you wanted to briefly touch on um the sudden shift in English government this week because they didn't just get a new they didn't just get a new monarch they got a new prime minister right that's right yeah, all within, a, all within 48 hours, exactly. Yeah, so we got uh, Charles and Liz Truss, um, who um, so far impressed me. I mean, it's it's hard not to be better than Boris Johnson, obviously. But uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> right, but maybe that's more purview since, since uh, you're one of the loyal subjects of the, what is it, 53 Commonwealth nations? Well, and, and and you, my friends in the north, you always keep forgetting to to declare independence, right? Well, look, somebody else is paying for our head of state. We are cheap and lazy. <laughs> and uh, the idea that we get to have a pared down, whittled down head of state, because most of the head of state stuff is being paid for by taxpayers in the UK, that suits us fine. I mean, we're also just Canadians intrinsically, like we're stooges, we're toadies. That's why the country exists, right? A bunch of people were so pissed off about the freedom they won during the American Revolution, they moved and created Toronto. Um, (laughs) Imagine just like, you know, pulling up and leaving, you know, New York or Charleston or some nice city and creating Toronto just because you can't abide. Um... Americans' lack of respect for authority. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think we'll keep that monarchy until the second we have to pay for it. How does it look from outside? Yeah, I don't know. I was just feeling nostalgic because, I mean, she's she's been here all of our lives, right? And, um, uh, you know, it's it's obviously the end of an era. And, you know, one wonders if it's also the start the beginning of the end perhaps of the monarchy uh in the uk because obviously she was wildly popular and he's not so much and so um i don't know if we see uh if we see many faux pas on his part um maybe that will be the start of the implosion of the monarchy i think that's entirely possible because um and not because I think he's going to do something wrong, but because I think he's going to do something good. He has been at every major international climate change conference since 1985. He was delivering warnings about where we'd be now in the late 80s. As much as he and his dad did not get along, they both had like a profound love of nature and the physical world and a desire to do something about that. My guess is that he will overplay his hand and he will make conservatives hate the monarchy without gaining any support from non-conservatives. My guess is that my guess is that he will he may well, because he thinks it's a matter of life and death, attempt an inappropriate level of oversight of parliament in an attempt to arrest climate change. And uh, I think that's the Achilles. I think that's what will bring him down. I think Mm. if the sun and the spectator turn against him, 
that's going to cut into the core of the monarchist base. Right. And also in the context of surging energy prices, right? I mean, predicting what 80% yeah. price hikes by winter and such. Um, but yeah, if there's ever a clarion call for the development of uh, alternative forms of energy, in fact, uh, uh, we were pioneers in our subdivision here in Richmond in fighting our homeowners association to get the first solar panels installed on a home. So uh, I, I feel good about that. And our first bills are coming in for $7 a month. I'm glad you mentioned local Virginia politics because memory serves, it was either, I don't, maybe it wasn't 2020, maybe it was 2018, wasn't um, the first member of the Socialist Party elected to a state legislature elected in Virginia in 2018? Mm, you might be right about that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think of like Virginia yeah. as the cradle of socialism. <laughs> yeah. But, but now we have a there you are. now we have a Republican governor, though. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, there, there has been this historic shift actually from let's see, since 1964, the state went for Obama mm -hmm. uh, the first time. And since that was the first time the state had voted blue Democratic in a presidential election since since my uh, birth year, 1964. So yeah, there's been a rapid transformation. Um, it's mostly become a blue state and that's because of the great population growth in Northern Virginia. Uh, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where half the population live, they're mostly so-called carpetbaggers from the north who are mostly Democrats. And so that's that's been the real kind of impetus for this uh, shift to uh, shift to the uh, Democratic Party. But again, we have a Republican governor now. So right now, one of the things that is uh, that often happens in a jurisdiction like that, and I, I live in such a place is um, uh, rural British Columbia um, used to be one of the most socialistic rural areas in North America. Every, the whole province was the site of a political battle. And what's happened as a reaction to urban demographic dominance and dominance by the sort of upper income progressive left, this new kind of left that isn't working class, it's it's really polarized things culturally here. Like I couldn't believe how culturally polarized this place has been in my lifetime. I left the Southwest corner of the province to, to go up North to get, get some of my stuff during a move. And while I was in the Southwest, every single commercial establishment, everyone was masked. And as soon as we left, the 604 area code and crossed into 250, no one was masked anywhere. And you're situated in an urban area, but you're situated in the old rural periphery of the longer term residents who aren't part of this metropolitan DC focused thing. What level of cultural polarization do you deal with in, in your community? And does it shake down in the classroom? Well, yeah. Um, Richmond, of course, is a former capital of the Confederacy, right? Right. <laughs> so we have that legacy. Um, but I, I don't know. I must tell you. Um, so actually at the university, again, because half the state is from Northern Virginia, it's called Nova 
uh, colloquially. Um, actually, the majority of our students at Virginia Commonwealth University are from Northern Virginia, much more so than Richmond, because, mm. you know, Northern Virginia is like four million people, whereas Richmond's just a bit over uh, one million. When, when I spent a semester abroad in college in Columbia in the mid 1980s, I was shocked at the political polarization in Colombia. But, you know, since the Trump era, the the cultural political polarization of the United States is pretty much on a Latin American par. I don't see that so much reflected in my classroom. American academia is generally on the left, right? And so, uh, yeah, there's not, yeah, I, that's not reflected in my classroom, at least. There's not... There's not many kind of voices from the right being represented in my classrooms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the country, the nation at large is is hyper polarized, but but that's not reflected in my classes. So um, now uh, since uh, since doing competitive spirits, obviously, you've uh, continued a bunch of work. You, you put together a collection on um, uh, a collaborative uh, book on uh, Santa Muerte. So I'm wondering, what are the, um, first of all, can you take people into, we keep referring to Santa Muerte, we've said some things about how Santa Muerte looks, what's the origin of Santa Muerte, and why is this such a significant saint? Yeah, let me say that that my book is not collaborative. It's oh, okay. I'm, it's it's my own book it, devoted to death, Santa Muerte the Skeleton. I mean, I have oh, okay. coll coll collaborated with Actually, my research partners at University of British Columbia, Dr. Kate Kins Kingsbury, uh, we've written articles together, but not not a book together. Um, what is the origin of Santa Muerte? Santa Muerte, although <laughs> it's kind of fallen out of favor in religious studies to talk about religious syncretism. But I think if ever there was a case of religious syncretism, Santa Muerte is born of religious syncretism in that when the Spanish Catholic Church comes over as part and parcel of the conquest and colonization of the Americas, they bring with them the figure of the Grim Reapers because in Mediterranean Europe, Mediterranean Catholic Europe, Spain, Italy, Portugal, more often than not, the Grim Reaper was represented female, thus I call her the Grim Reapers. So, you know, the Spanish and the Portuguese come over here without knowing anything about the Native Americans. They're not in the Bible. Who are they? Are they animals? Do they have souls? Um, do they have religion? They have no idea, of course, that they have, I mean, some of the society, some of the cultures have, you know, pretty sophisticated religious systems. The Aztecs, the Mayas have their own death deities. And so they bring over the figure of the Grim Reapers as a tool of evangelizing the indigenous people as personifying death to them. Because back in Spain and Europe in general, the Grim Reaper and the Grim Reapers was a mere artistic representation of death. Europeans did not worship or venerate or ask the Grim Reaper for miracles. So obviously certain indigenous groups in Mexico, and there's actually two other skeleton saints, one in Guatemala and one in Argentina. Um, uh, they, they see the Spanish Grim Reapers and, and obviously make the association with their own death deities, right? Some of whom also are represented as skulls and skeletons. And so thus 
the Spanish Grim Reapers transforms into a supernatural miracle worker at some point during the colonial period in uh, in Mexico. We don't know when, but the first mention in the annals of the Spanish Inquisition in Mexico are in the 1790s, at the very end of the colonial period, uh, when when um, Chichimec indigenous people in the present day states of Guanajuato and Querétaro are rumored to be worshiping a skeletal figure they call Santa Muerte. Inquisitors right out from Mexico City find that it's true and they smash the skeletal idol and they castigate the Chichimec indigenous people. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 a fusion, a syncretism of the Spanish Grim Reapers and indigenous death deities. And so obviously the chances of Catholic canonization are going to be very, very poor for the skeleton. <laughs> I would think so, because, I mean, at least in our lifetime, because <laughs> on an almost weekly basis, the church in Mexico um, rebukes Santa Muerte as satanic. Um, and, and they decanonized St. Christopher just because he was a nine-foot-tall dog-headed man who lived for over 200 years. John Paul II <laughs> did that. So they well, are also, you know, they're also cleaning the catalog. Well, I should say that when we, you know, I, I mentioned the case of, of St. Juan Diego. Um, the rector of the Basilica of Guadalupe actually resigned over his canonization, saying that there was no concrete evidence that Juan Diego ever even existed. <laughs> so here we might have a case of a saint who was canonized who, who probably never existed. So Yes, but, you know, he wasn't a skeleton or a cynocephalus. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, right. So Santa Muerte actually is religious enemy number one for the Catholic Church in Mexico. And so, yeah, no, no canonization uh, project in the near future. In the PhD program I was in, Ken Mills um, took a very strong position, which was held by a lot of the sort of conversion studies folks he worked with, um, that syncretism was, was a, a racist idea, that his argument was that all conversion looks like this that in all cases of conversion, there's massive hybridization with the prior belief system. But when white Europeans hybridize their belief system with Christianity, we don't call it syncretism. So we don't call the incorporation of the Greek Trinity into, um, or any of the other parts of Platonism into Catholicism. We don't call that syncretism. Oh, we yeah, don't well, call yeah. the incorporation of Yule into Christianity syncretism because uh, it's um, it's that. So you're using the term and you used it very effectively to explain a thing to the audience. But what's your take on that criticism of syncretism? I, no, I would use syncretism to to explain exactly what you're talking about with with Greece and actually, you know, as the the Roman Catholic Church spreads across Europe. Also, you know, incorporating all kinds of pagan rituals and festivals and rites, that's syncretism too. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, it's probably true that in the past there has been a certain colonialist element to the way it's used, but I'm not using it that way. I'm, 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 I see syncretism everywhere across the board. Right. So you're more a man rhetorically after my own heart. 
you'd rather offend everyone than abandon a useful term. <laughs> yeah, equal opportunity offender. Right? Yes, no, no, we're gonna make this we're gonna make this term equally offensive to all of you. That's the way forward. We're not because, uh, we're because not you know, I mean what you know, a term that you often see as kind of a replacement is or two terms, association, religious association, or symbiosis. But I, I don't think either of those terms really applies. I think this is a true case of a fusion of syncretism of these of these similar but but at the same time discrete elements. And I, I don't think symbiosis captures it. Uh, and association is is I think too vague. So I think in this particular particular case syncretism is the most apt term well i, I do have to say you turn my mind around because that's usually that's what my instinct in in this moment in this historical moment where everybody's really polishing their bourgeois sensitivity ah uh, <laughs> and fragility uh i'm i i i think i'm going to adopt your strategy and just well also you know I'm, I'm kind of late mid-career full professor so <laughs> oh well my career's over so so, so, uh, so we're fine <laughs> so i don't have some of the uh constraints that i might have had a while ago so uh, the last thing i wanted to hit today you'd commented that uh, getting an Argentine Pope hasn't really paid off for the Catholic Church in Latin America yes, in the way yes. that some people thought it must. Yes, have. yes, that I was just writing about that today. I mean, it's really spectacular. I mean, nine years into his papacy, that was the major reason why he was elected Pope, our first New World Pope ever, our first Jesuit Pope. Yet in nine years, we now have data from several Latin American countries and most spectacularly in Brazil and Chile to show that the hemorrhaging of membership has continued apace during his decade uh, decade as Pope. Um, he hasn't even bothered to return to Argentina, <laughs> which is just blows my mind. I know, you know, he thinks he'll get embroiled in Argentine politics and the various political factions will use it for their own benefit, but nonetheless, not going back to your native country, which is also experiencing major hemorrhaging of the Catholic Church, to me, is just a major oversight. So yeah, the bleeding, the decline has continued. And as much as there's many things that I admire of him, um, he basically doesn't believe in <laughs> in evangelization and proselytization, unlike the Pentecostals. And so the major or the sole force for evangelization in the Catholic Church uh, in the recent past has been the charis Catholic charismatic renewal. Again, you know, the Pentecostal version, uh, the, the Catholic version of Pentecostals. And he's no friend of the charismatics. I think he basically sees them as, you know, uh, bourgeois conservative Catholics um, who aren't, you know, who aren't on board with his program of liberation theology. And so, you know, he's basically neglected the the most important lay group that actually was out there, you know, knocking on doors and trying to bring back um, disaffected Catholics to the fold. And so in terms of evangelization, he's basically done nothing. And so it's no surprise for those of us who, who are church watchers that, the massive decline in membership in the region that has the greatest Catholic population on earth has continued to pace under his watch.
So, um, and, and, and you think this is just, and don't get me and- wrong. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, I'm just, this is just, you know, neutral analysis of that. I'm, I'm not saying that brigade should go out and be evangelizing everything, but when the Pentecostals and the Mormons and the Jehovah's witnesses are knocking on doors and make that job one and the Catholic church doesn't, well, we see the results. So I thought part of, I mean, I, I'm not really clear on this, but I mean, this guy was a fairly high level um, uh, person in the church in Argentina between 1976 and 83 during the dictatorship where the Cardinal Pio Laghi was directly involved in making the death squad list. And I've never really understood what the relation, like how, how he managed to either stay undercover to what degree he collaborated. I have very little understanding of who he was or what he did during those seven really crucial years in Argentina where unlike Chile, um, the Catholic Church actively cooperated with the dictatorship and formally participated in it. No, actually, in general, the Argentine Church did too, as well. In general, yeah, the, the hierarchy, the hierarchy was also backing backing the dirty war. No, that's what well. I mean. Oh, in yeah, Chile, okay. they weren't. Yeah. In Argentina, they were. And in Brazil, they weren't either. So, so yeah, Argentina was kind of the exception, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not well versed on details about that, but I, I think it's clear that um, he had back channel relations with the dictatorship and was was most interested in um, in saving the hide of of his fellow Jesuits and. Obviously, you know, it was not a prophetic voice like some others were in Brazil and Chile and Guatemala publicly opposing the dictatorship and and was not by no means was a partisan of liberation theology. So that's been a really interesting transformation uh, that has taken place as Pope. I mean, he really has gravitated toward liberation theology, which basically (laughs) in terms of any kind of lay practice in Latin America has been dead in the water for a while. So it's interesting that he gravitated uh, toward that at a time where the pastoral expression known as based Christian communities, you know, are, are defunct and have been for, for a while. Yes. The way he sort of uncloaked and announced that these were his beliefs, it was quite shocking. There's a, a political activist in Vancouver who did something very consequential, a woman named, Connie Hubs, who had served on the board of this party, the Coalition of Progressive Electors, for years and went along with all the shitty things one regime did, and then went along with all the shitty things the next regime did. And then the moment that regime looked weak and her opposition was consequential, um, she installed fabulous people and uncloaked as being. So I know there's that kind of person who can keep their powder dry for a decade or more and then make that consequential move that really does benefit people. So I don't want to see that, you know, so I'm not trying to frame his shift as hypocritical in any way. Some, you know, uh, you know, my friends who went through the original blacklist during McCarthyism, it's like, no, you need an inside man sometimes. But uh, yeah, this sounds stranger in that he's almost 
nostalgically describing the side he would have been on rather than putting himself on a side in the present. And I'm thinking, yeah, and I suspect that with his ailing health, I mean, we see him in a wheelchair most of the time, and now the precedent established by um, his predecessor, Benedict, I suspect that we might see him retiring soon as well. Yeah, I think there was an expectation that, that, that this trip to Canada was his last. Certainly he did some good in that trip because Indigenous Catholics sure don't have a lot of friends in this country right now. And at, uh, I know it made a, a big difference to my friends in that community. Right, but at the same time, you know, a couple of years ago, he he canonized Junipero Serra, the California cleric, who is very controversial among Native Americans and Californians. Many of them were opposed to it. I was opposed to it. Yet he fast tracked him, and you know, there are records of him, you know, being a, a colonial abuser of the indigenous and and whipping them and everything. Yet again, because of the lack of saints from the Americas, he fast-tracked them and you know announced his canonization during his visit to the United States. Um, and and one would think that, I mean, I know you know Argentina doesn't have a major indigenous population, but you would think that a son of the Americas um, would be savvier on on these issues of of you know first peoples, Native Americans. As I said before, the two the two biggest demographics most rapidly leaving the Catholic Church are indigenous people and those of African descent. Well, I guess that'll be the challenge for the next guy. So I uh, absolutely should let you go. I want to say I very much, very much appreciated our talk. It was um, totally what uh, I built it up to be. So it's nice to have a conversation that exceeds one's expectations. So I want to thank you very much for finding an hour for the show. No, the pleasure was mutual. It was nice to, to be far ranging and cover um, several topics and uh, be sipping my passion fruit mezcal with uh, chili powder on it as well. And so, I thank you very much for the um, invitation and hope to see you soon in Vancouver because of the next Latin American Studies Association conference, I believe in next May is in Vancouver. Well, that's great. I'll, uh, we'll go for Northern Chinese food and um, uh, it will be glorious. Or Punjabi, right? <laughs> or Punjabi, we'll take you to Surrey. There's a great <laughs> restaurant called the Tasty Indian Bistro, which is a socially revolutionary as well as culinarily revolutionary restaurant. So maybe we'll start there after all. Great name too. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks again. We'll, we'll see you in May. This has been another episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in following my other work, please check out my blog at stuartparker.ca or my institute, Los Altos, at losaltos.ca. Los Altos also maintains an audio archive of the courses we have taught here on Anchor. Finally, if you're interested in supporting the work that I'm doing here, consider visiting my page on Patreon and making a monthly contribution to support independent critical thought. 